By the way, did you guys hear my cats in the background? I don't know they what's going on there. Crazy noises. <laughs> cats are like, stop talking about the Jets. <laughs> they're upset about talking about the Jets and the Vikings yeah, and the Mets. They are. They're they're very upset about all of this. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 21st, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? <laughs> good, how are you? I'm good, you know. Um, I my, my Georgia Tech almost pulled off an upset against Clemson, although Clemson looks so anemic these days that is that really an upset? I don't even know. It's it's not the same Clemson. Maybe they'll pull it together by the end of the year. Yeah, I don't know if we're excited for Georgia Tech there or just like worried about Clemson. Uh, so sorry. <laughs> it's probably maybe, worried about Clemson, let's be both. honest. Why not both? <laughs> and from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. So, Neil, you know, just doing a little transitive math here. Northern Illinois beat georgia tech right yes they did yeah that's correct and then and michigan beat northern illinois 62 to 10 <laughs> so now i'm not bragging about michigan just saying <laughs> i think michigan, yeah, michigan is, georgia is tech. better than georgia tech wow that is breaking news <laughs> jeff well it is kind of breaking news i thought michigan was gonna be terrible <laughs> that does being able to beat georgia tech doesn't mean it, that you're not terrible <laughs> first of all neil even though I came out a little hot and was kind of firing shots, if you interpret it that way. <laughs> kind of. I, I was rooting. I always root for Georgia Tech. And that was too bad they couldn't pull it off. I do think Clemson is bad this year. But this is what's so exciting, right? Every There's so many college football teams that have a chance to, to make the playoff and then win. I mean... It'll probably still be Alabama, but it's really it's exciting that there's no, so many different teams. No, that's what I'm going teams. for is that yeah. I think it's possible this is our year that I mean, first of all, I don't even if Clemson wins out, I don't think they are going to make the playoff. To be honest, I, just because the ACC is so bad, but I think we actually might have a chance, might have a chance at a college football playoff. That's like interesting. Got some new, new, fresh Somewhat pieces. different teams, yeah. yes. Yeah. I'm excited. This is what we've been asking for for a long time. It is. And we've now turned this show into a college football podcast, which I'm like totally okay with also. <laughs> Should we just go straight to the Ryder Cup? I mean, since we're a golf <laughs> podcast also? Oh, Ugh. we're not even going to talk about the Ryder Cup today. I'm so sorry, Jeff. I, what's to say going into it? Like, either win or don't, U.S.? Like, it's just, you go, oh, your boys win. Right, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's our take. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got, uh, Ian Poulter or something, something. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Ian Poulter, something, something. So one uh, one note of, of uh, housekeeping here at the top. We love hearing from our listeners, even when it's to tell us things they'd like not to hear anymore on the show. So here's Hot Takedown's official stance for the rest of the NFL season on the Minnesota Vikings. They're bad. We don't need to keep hammering on that point because at least one of you listeners is sick of Jeff and Neil goading me into talking about how bad they are. <laughs> Thank you for the message. Mammoth four, three, two, one. <laughs> also Vikings aren't that bad. Come on. They're not that bad. <sighs> Listen, I mean, look, this is like a Stop. real time example again. of, <laughs> we're going to have another season of this <laughs> where you lump the Vikings in with the legitimately bad teams 
And it's not fair to both your team and the my actual team. bad teams. Is what you're, this is all. A, this is actually just a Jets defense. I like that. Um, yeah. that's great. I mean, look, so we are sometimes we're going to have to talk about how you know ridiculous one certain team is what it does ridiculous te- things, and sometimes that will be the Vikings. So this isn't a moratorium. But after this moment, we can talk about them a little less. I will not make any promises about the rest of my teams, though. There's not a ton. To talk about there right now. Either. Oh, you want to talk about the twins? Let's talk about the twins. You no, know, I don't actually. It's fine. Didn't Eddie Rosar- <laughs> Eddie Rosario hit for the cycle, but not as a yeah. Twin. We don't. We definitely don't need to talk about that. Who is that? Who is that listener a fan of? We'll talk about that team. We can talk about any team. Uh, we talk about everything. I think here. just not my team. I mean, is the is the. I mean, most. <laughs> I mean, and when I say everything, I mean mostly Jets football, Michigan football, and golf. But that's so far what this podcast is. Yeah, uh, I I could talk about anything on today's show we'll talk about the ravens decision to go for it on fourth down late against the chiefs and why the choice was never in doubt then we'll talk about the WNBA playoffs and what we can expect from the early rounds and finally we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week week two of the nfl season did not see quite as many upsets but we did have our share of wild games one of the best and closest outings of the weekend saw the Baltimore Ravens shake off their demons of the past few seasons and beat the Kansas City Chiefs. They won the game in dramatic style with just over a minute to play in the fourth quarter. The Ravens had a decision to make facing fourth and one from their own 43 yard line. Announcers Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth discussed in real time how gutsy or not the call was on the NBC broadcast. What do you do if you're Baltimore right now? Don't discount the possibility that they go for this. No, you don't. It's going to be one hell of a call, though. This would be really rough. But they play whatever the math says. They don't even think about it. They don't worry about it. And Lamar Jackson is going back on the field, and they are going for it, or at least the hard count. At least line up. But they have been picking up a yard at will all night long. You've got this monster offensive line. You've got extra offensive linemen in there. Chiefs have to make sure they don't jump. And Jackson will get the first down and, in effect, end the game. Go on with it, John Harbaugh. The guts of a sailor. He made the toughest call a head coach has to make, and look at him. He knows it. That yep. decision just won the football game. They kicked that thing back to Patrick Mahomes. Who knows what happened? Of course, the Ravens went for it, made it, and won the game. <laughs> so, Neil, was this the toughest call that a head coach can make? What does the math actually say about going for it in this situation? Well, it wasn't exactly an easy call. You know, like you uh, you, you had the weight of all of football tradition, uh, <laughs> you know, perhaps advocating for a punt and also the fear of what would happen if it didn't work out, uh, you know, weighing on you just like any coach. You know, John Harbaugh is, is not immune to that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this this is getting to be an easier call. And I think part of that is because of the math. Like uh, if you just look at the win probability models, our, our friend Seth Walder of ESPN uh, Stats and Info, he ran the numbers on that and found that uh, in real time, it was about 79% win probability for the Ravens if they went for it, 75% if they punted. Uh, and it, you could, there's some fuzziness around that, and it doesn't necessarily take into account the 
the Patrick Mahomes factor right. uh, or the the Ravens rushing game slash Lamar Jackson effectiveness on on fourth and short factor. But both of those would actually tilt toward going for it. So, you know, I think no matter how you cut the numbers uh, and, and plug them in, whether it's like a simple win probability model that just uses the league averages. If you did that, it's 80 uh, percent win probability. If you go for it, 74 percent if you punt to, you know, some of the more customizable factors uh, that you take into account. The math does say that it, you know, is a slight edge, uh, but but a meaningful edge to going for it. And I think that that's something that coaches and and people who who make these decisions have realized a lot more recently that you know maybe you can trace it back to that infamous Bill Belichick yeah. you know going for it on fourth and two uh, to avoid giving Peyton Manning the ball uh, I think it was in 2009 they failed on that and there was tremendous backlash but I think in retrospect uh, this was a case of Bill Belichick being sort of ahead of the curve and uh, envisioning the way coaches would would view things going forward and almost sort of destigmatizing like he took all the bullets for that so that future coaches could sort of feel more like they were able to go for it in those particular situations and, and not suffer the slings and arrows. Of course, it helps with John Harbaugh that it actually did work. Yeah, I agree. I actually didn't think it was. I I, I kind of thought it was a no brainer. You don't want to give the ball. You don't give the ball back to Patrick Mahomes. I mean, like that. Even if there's a minute left, like that's more than enough time. You know, look at the score. You're not doing that great of a job stopping him. Just like every other team is not doing that great of a job stopping him. Why would you do that? And you know, I think that's not even factoring in the fact that they have Lamar Jackson and and they're very equipped to pick up that short yardage. I mean, I, I would go for that almost in any situation against the Chiefs in particular. Well, and now uh, you know, it's almost funny that the the models that I just referenced have it kind of as close as they have it like they 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 have it within like a few percentage points difference because we've been trained to think i i think anytime you go for it on fourth down and short that the analytics are going to be sort of like overwhelmingly in favor of it or anytime that uh, you know the coaching decision might be dictated by fear instead of aggressiveness that the analytics would always favor you know the aggressive choice in in a in a landslide and so maybe the more surprising thing now we're at the point that when you crunch the the cold, unfeeling numbers, that there actually was maybe some case to be made or, you know, it's it's at yeah. least within a few percentage points, because now we think that the analytics always say go for it no matter what. I was going to say, but in this case, I think the analytics are are being too conservative because uh, I don't think they're factoring in, you know, some of these intangibles that I'm bringing up. Like, for instance, there was, I think, arguments, if you think of that famous play in the NFC Championship where Matt LaFleur decided to kick a field goal down eight when he has Aaron Rodgers and he could score a touchdown and get a two-point conversion and not give the ball back to Tom Brady, who only needs to pick up one first down. You know, I think there was some argument that the analytics was actually a little closer than. In, but I think everyone agreed that that was a terrible decision um, based on. Yeah, I, just, see, and I thought it was a, an OK decision by the math because the they were they were going to get the ball back. And they did. Remember, they did stop Brady, except for a, a, a pass bad pass interference yeah. call. Yeah. But put it this way, if you're a fan, like let's say you're a Chiefs fan and every NFL fan or any football fan knows this feeling. You're praying they punt. 
you're dreading the fact that they go for it on fourth down. And that's probably true of every fourth down yeah. call. You know, I think I was looking back at that that Packers-Buccaneers example, and Shaq Barrett, the linebacker for the Buccaneers, was, like, shocked and, like, couldn't understand why they were kicking a field goal and relieved. Um, so that's sort of the sentiment. I mean, if you're a Bucks fan in that situation, you're like, please kick it. So if you're doing the thing the other team, the other fan base is, is dying for you to do – to me, that doesn't make, make it seem like you made the right call. <laughs> but doesn't that also, I mean, that plays into fears going the opposite direction, right? Like, you know, from the perspective of the team with the ball, their fear is, well, what if we don't get it and then we've handed them basically instant field goal range or whatever? Now, the Mahomes factor complicates those fears because you're afraid of him getting the ball after the punt. But this kind of calculus of like, always do the thing that the other team is fearing doesn't always work out because they're afraid of you going for it on fourth down because they're afraid of what happens if you get it, you know, because that ends the game, essentially. So you're both afraid of different things, but I don't know if it's a symmetrical fear, if that makes sense. Well, and also, and the the difference of who you have running the ball on your team. I mean, Lamar Jackson picking up one yard did not seem in doubt at any point during that game. And, and there are teams where, you know, you do think they're going to struggle if you don't, if your offensive line isn't very good, if you, you know, there are, there are different. And so the win probability models that we're looking at, they do take into account like kind of rough uh, factors of who you are and who you're facing, but they don't know, like, is your, you, you know, is your is your starting right tackle hurt? You know, that kind of thing, um, that level of granularity. These are basic win probability assumptions from what normally happens at this point in the game. Do you normally win? And these were like, I mean, like you said, Neil, it was like you're you're 79% to win if you go for it. You're 75% to win if you punt it. These are very high numbers. Most people, most teams are going to win at that point of the game in in that situation with that amount of time left. Um, so so these are small edges in an overall environment where you're assuming the Raven, that where the Ravens are probably going to win. But it's looking for those small edges. I think that's really interesting. But it, but we go, go back to it is hard for people to understand things that are probabilities and not binaries because it is a binary result. You're either going to make the first down or not. You're either going to punt it or not. Um, and it's hard, I think, for people to apply those probabilities in a way that, like, especially when you're used to football the way it's been played for many, many, many years, to like get into this math that doesn't quite feel right for the situation that you're that you're talking about. Um, it's hard. Well, and you don't have time to work out all that math. I mean, it's not really even yeah. like I, I made a spreadsheet where I sort of went through the various different scenarios and what the odds are. And you can customize that to someone like Patrick Mahomes or the Ravens efficiency at converting on, you know, f uh, third or fourth and short uh, or two point conversions or whatever kind of comparable you want to make on that. Uh, so you can customize and you can kind of work out the math and see where it comes from. But John Harbaugh does not have the benefit of having a computer and, and, you know, the time to kind of work it out on the sidelines. He can't look things up on pro football reference or whatever. You know, <laughs> he has to make that call in, in the moment. And I know they've got, you know, quality control coaches and folks whose job is is and perhaps the Ravens more than any other team because they have a 
pretty well regarded and and you know sizable analytics staff you know they would have people whose entire job it is to kind of help make these decisions but still in that moment it really comes down to making a snap decision and i don't think like to your point sarah probabilistic thinking uh and making decisions off of that uh is is especially well suited to situations where you have to make a very quick choice under pressure in a in a very public setting Anytime we have a moment like this, I always and I've, I think I've mentioned this before, but I always think back of that scene in Moneyball, you know, where Brad Pitt's talking to the the old guard scouts um, and they're saying, you know, this guy, this guy, you know, they're they're talking in platitudes like he's he's a real professional hitter and all that stuff. He looks good in jeans. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's always this like friction between old guard and new guard. And I think we see that in the NFL. I think actually baseball's kind of gone beyond that and everyone's embraced it. But we still see this friction in the NFL all the time. We see it in the draft. We see it in uh, team building. We see it in, you know, game, uh, you know, moment in the moment decisions like this one. And part of the factor here is that we have these guys, Collinsworth and Michaels, who are t- total old guard guys. I mean, saying you have the guts of a sailor. First of all, is that even an expression? Um, <laughs> Not when I'm familiar yeah, what does with. that mean? Like, do all sailors have guts? What if there's no wind and you're in a very safe boat? I mean, it doesn't make sense. So you always have the announcers like shocked and appalled. Oh, they're going right. for it. Oh, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa getting all apoplectic and like i think the average that is not representative of what the average fan is thinking or at least the sort of modern fan um so i think that kind of influences decision but it does seem like that sort of the commentary always is always surprised when a team is doing something that makes a lot more sense well and that's that's really the issue right it's this like i i feel like some of the old school thinking was you pl- you're playing not to be embarrassed, playing not to lose by a lot, not playing to win necessarily. You see it sometimes in when you're facing Kansas City. You see it in, in college when teams are facing Alabama. You cannot settle for field goals. You have to you have to keep pace with these teams offensively. But I think it's very easy to settle into that. Well, we'll get points on the board here. We're going to you know have a respectable showing. But this sort of waving the white flag from the beginning and not playing to win. And I think you see that now that like, no, no, we we can be aggressive. We might get, you know, we might fail here, but we're going to try to win this game. And I think that's a different kind of mentality than some of the older school thinking when you're facing a good team. It's the old Herm Edwards. You play to win the game. (laughs) I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, All right. Well, so before we before we leave the uh, the NFL, let's get our survivor pool covered. Everyone got a point last week. Off to a strong start. I I had the the Cardinals. You had the Browns. Neil had the Broncos. I had the Broncos. Yes. You know, the 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 Broncos are, are looking fun. The Browns were a little shaky for a second. That was interesting. And the Cardinals obviously almost lost. Um, <laughs> probably should have, uh, but that's okay. I, I'll take the point. That's how this works. All right. So the, the order for picking this week is Neil, Sarah, Jeff, Neil, who you got? Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't pick against the jets this week because, uh, I already took the Broncos, which is sad because I like Teddy Bridgewater, I like rooting for him last week. So in, in lieu of that, I'm going to take, oh man, I'm going to take Sam Darnold yes. and the Carolina Panthers. <laughs> 
against Houston, who's starting someone named Davis Mills uh, at quarterback uh, instead of Terod Taylor. So, yeah, I don't think that that's going to go well for the Texans. But we'll see. They've been, you know, pluckier than expected. But I, they I have like been Carolina. plucky. Yeah, that's that's a Thursday night game, isn't it? It is. It is. It's the feels early one. like a Thursday night game. <laughs> it does. God, no one's gonna watch that. Uh, Everyone will watch that. Uh, yeah. What else are we gonna watch? <laughs> oh, we'll watch the WNBA. Uh, okay, I might not watch Carolina, uh, Texas. Um, yeah, you know, I thought that the Texans are with with Taylor. They're an interesting team. Now, if Taylor's out, then then not so much. But, you know, they could actually not be the worst team in the NFL. That's exciting. We really thought they might be the worst team in the NFL going in. And maybe maybe they won't be. I don't know. Um, I'm just stalling while I think about my pick. I So I guess I'm going to. Clearly. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, I, I'm going to take the Broncos. I have to. Yeah. Got to take the Broncos at home against the Jets. That's That feels easy. Yeah. All right. I've got Denver. Come on, Teddy. Jeff, who you got? You know, I'm tempted to take the Ravens at Detroit, but Detroit's looking a little a little spicy there, right? I mean, kind of hanging with the Packers for a while, had to come back against the Niners, and maybe we have a letdown week for the Ravens. So I'm going to avoid that, and I'll go with the Cardinals, who you took last week, at Jacksonville. Yep. Jacksonville's terrible. I mean, as much fanfare as... as Wilson got Trevor for Lawrence. his performance. Trevor oh, yeah. Lawrence was almost as bad. And I think Arizona looks really solid. Uh, Murray looks like an MVP candidate. So Yep. Yep. He's gonna he's gonna I run wild. Safe. Yeah. Feel safe. I yeah, I think that's a that's a good that's a safe pick. All right, well we will see how those picks play out next week. For now, let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the WNBA. The WNBA postseason is getting underway with two single elimination games this Thursday. The Dallas Wings are taking on the Chicago Sky and the Phoenix Mercury are facing the surprising eight seed New York Liberty. Multiple unlikely things had to break New York's way for the sub 500 team to break through, including needing the Lynx to beat the Mystics and the Wings to beat the Sparks on the last day of the season. On the Locked On Women's Basketball Podcast, Bradshaw Furlong had trouble seeing a way for the Liberty to keep their momentum going, such as it was. I think the path for the Liberty is, like, hopefully your three-point shooting gets hot, because, like, obviously, we all saw they broke the record most threes made in the season. Congratulations. There you go. You got something from this wretched season that the Liberty have had, and a playoff spot. Um, Like, hopefully, you can, like, hopefully, like, their three-point shooting gets hot, and, like, they don't have an abomination of a turnover game, which, I mean, has been a bit of a problem for them kind of all season. But, you're, yeah, you're playing a team that, like, you guys have been, like, really awful in the second half, and then the Mercury have been, like, really, really good in the second yeah. half. So it's yeah. kind of like, <laughs> it's like a stock, it's like a stock chart of just, like, like you guys just cross paths at, at a certain point. Like, you guys cross <laughs> paths in the middle of the season, and since then it has just gone in two opposite directions. The Liberty started the season so hot, winning five of their first six games, which gave them three more wins than they had all of last season. They ended pretty terribly, finishing with a 2-11 and stint that included an eight-game losing streak nestled in there. They needed a season finale win over the Mystics to even set up the wild Sunday that, that got them in the playoffs. So is there any hope? For this 12 and 20 team, Jeff, can you think of any other comparable cases where a sub 500 team 
snuck into the playoffs of, of any sport and was able to pull itself together? Well, it, it doesn't happen that much. Um, but, you know, there's a couple notable examples in the NFL. Obviously, the um, the 2010 Seahawks are a famous example of a 7-9 and nine team that made the playoffs and then won. The, you know, the thing about football is if you're going to make the playoffs with that bad of a record, more often than not, like last year's Washington football team, you have won the division, you're going to get home field advantage. Um, which is kind of backwards. So Seattle had home field advantage. They're playing a very good Saints team, and they won. That's the the Beast Quake game by Marshawn Lynch went on that run, uh, crazy run. And then uh, just a few years later, uh, the Panthers did the same thing. They were 7-8-1, I believe, and they had a home game uh, against a, a good Cardinals team in theory, but it was a Cardinals team that had already lost Carson Palmer and it was down to their third-string quarterback, Ryan Lindley. And Carolina won that game, Would obviously that that was as far as they went. Um, but those were two sub-500 teams that at least won a playoff game. If you go to the NBA, there's a ton – because the, the West was so dominant for so long in, in the, the first couple decades of this century, a lot of really bad – Eastern Conference teams made the playoffs with really bad records, and almost categorically, they all got swept or just lost. You know, I, we remember Orlando last year won one game, I think, against the Bucks, and then lost the rest, and they were had a really bad record. Um, but generally, those teams don't go very far. The one exception is not even an exception, but like the the 2008 Hawks really put a scare into the Celtics in the first round. And, and they were a, a, a bad team. They were 37 and 45. So 0.451 win percentage, but they really came close to pulling off a huge upset. Um, I, I don't particularly remember the 2008 Hawks, but I'm sure Neil could spend the I next do, actually. I remember, about, uh, I remember yeah. that series. <laughs> uh, they did give them, uh, yeah, they did give them a hard time. I thought the Celtics, I was like, oh, you know, they may not uh, be all they're cracked up to be. Uh, but it just turns out that the Hawks were that good. No. <laughs> uh, also, well, I, I wanted to also bring up uh, the Houston Astros from last year. They were a sub-500 playoff team that snuck in <sighs> on the basis of the um, the expanded playoffs i know yeah. i'm sorry sarah and, and they almost went to the world series they they came within a couple games of of that i do think there's something interesting there though in that comparison because like in in the nba the you know we've written about this a little bit in the past that those the longer series mean that the better team is is going to win more often in the really short series like like one game you know one game nfl series then you know your your more weird things can happen, especially if the worst team has home field advantage. So that's kind of a weird thing. But like the, in the baseball one, the the Astros having you know the that really weird short wild card um, series and without fans, that was sort of a different kind of environment. Now in this case, the Liberty will be going to Phoenix. There will be fans, and the Phoenix Phoenix is much better. So I still not sure that that the Liberty are going to be able to to do anything um, there. But you know that there's there's a chance there. It's happened a couple of times. And there's a there's a difference between being 29 and 31 like the Astros were, uh, and being uh, what are the Liberty 12 and 20. They are, yes. In basketball, <laughs> which is a sport, like you said, the, the sport that's a lot more deterministic. And, yeah. you know, there's just each game contains a lot more information. 
Yeah, they're a yeah. bad team. They're they're. they're it's it's they easier are. to say they're a bad team. Yeah, they're not a they're not a great team. And so Neil, our our WNBA model gives the Liberty less than a one percent chance of winning at all, and less than a one percent chance of even making the final. In fact, three of the four teams playing in the first round have less than one percent odds of winning the title. Only the Mercury have any chance with our model, and that's only two percent. What's that all about? Well, I think part of it is because the Liberty are like by far the lowest rated playoff team in our ELO ratings by like 100 points almost below the second lowest rated playoff team, the Dallas Wings. And uh, then you go into those factors that you were talking about where they have to pull off a couple of single elimination granted but a couple of upsets just to be able to make it to the semifinals and then those are best of five uh, WNBA finals best of five uh and so the odds of them being able to kind of knock off all those teams and of course the team waiting for them if they do end up actually defeating both the Mercury and then the Storm are the Connecticut Sun who are the best team in the WNBA uh so it's just all of these factors kind of add up to make it um you know, it's like low probability times low probability times super duper low probability. And just to so the way the WNBA playoffs work, there's it's reseeding. So they would actually face the Lynx in the. Oh, I see. And then they'd face the sun. Yeah, that makes it even right? worse. Yeah, they, they, it's a tough road for the Liberty, um, but it's a tough road for any of the first the the first, you know, the first four to play. And it's a tough road if you're not a one of the double buy if you're not one of the top two seeds no team that plays in the first two rounds has gone on to win a WNBA championship it's always one of the teams that started with a double buy sometimes one of the teams um with just a single buy will get to the final but but the teams that have won have always been that that double buy and the teams with the double buys are really good I mean Connecticut the Sun have won 14 in a row the Aces have run 10 of 12. Do we think these are the teams we're going to see in the final? Or could the numbers three or four teams, the Lynx and the Storm, could they make a little noise? I mean, it seems like not in our model, at least. I mean, the Sun have an 85% chance to make the finals and the Aces have a 70% chance uh, to make the finals. And I do think that that is because of the, the setup and the way that you know, they've kind of stacked the odds, rightly so, but sort of the format is stacked toward being, like you said, those those teams with two buys. Did, can we talk about the Liberty for a second? Yes. Nobody's stopping team, you, Jeff. Is this team, I'm just wondering, you know, we talk about like the great streaks of ineptitude, but I'm just curious, this team never winning a championship has to be up there i mean as a like an original charter team of the of the league and how many finals have they lost like i think four four okay i mean they're just never in that conversation of of kind of the all-time disappointments in sports but to me that they have to be in there i did some i guess it's just shocking to me that they've never won a title and then they get this number one overall pick who was talked about with this sort of breathless anticipation that she was a a franchise transforming talent. That she was she the was Trevor like Lawrence a, of the she WNBA. Was a generational <laughs> talent. Um, um, but uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to obviously watch her very often. But is an INS is she just going to be not anything sort of otherworldly, or, or is she showing signs of improvement? Or, is there hope? I guess what I'm saying as as the Liberty have moved beyond the Dolans and that fiasco's gone and. 
and they're in, under you know Alibaba management now and, and have a new home like is there hope for that team oh I think so I mean I think they they showed um they showed a lot of uh, a promise this year I mean they they you know I think it's tough when you come into a league and you get hurt right away and like this year I think Sabrina she's I, I think she's shown interesting bit. You know, she had a triple double early in the season. I think there's some there's stuff there. There's interesting stuff there. I think she's going to be a good long term player. I will say, I I think this is something. This is a maybe. This is a media criticism, but there is this. There's a lack of understanding of the talent in the WNBA, and so when we see a really good women's college player, it's like, oh well, she's going to tear up the WNBA, and it's like, no, no. She's going to be a rookie and she's going to get eaten up at first. But it's really hard to to be really good right away in the WNBA. It takes there's a learning curve, which is not that. I mean, that shouldn't be that surprising. These players are really good. So that's why when I hear this talk about like Paige Beckers, you know, that she could start for a WNBA team right now at point guard. I'm like, no, <laughs> she's like she's tidy. She needs some strength. She needs she needs work. She's not ready. She's not a full formed player yet. I mean, the, the, the WNBA players are not messing around. They are good and they're it's a much better level than women's college basketball obviously but we have seen i mean we've seen players who were taken number one uh you know like asia wilson and uh brianna stewart uh, who were sort of in the similar category when they were in college come in and play at least you know really well right away so i do think that it is kind of an indictment of sabrina that she has not done that you know and is still kind of a below average player by by the stats so far I'm, granted I'm, she was hurt yeah granted I, she was hurt i'm not disagreeing with you i will i th- i have this theory about that guard play versus big play in the WNBA is a different kind of learning curve. Guards, I think, are have a tougher time running a team, running a, a little bit more of advanced offense um, and holding your own. I, but it is. I think it is. I think Sabrina has been a disappointment that, so far. That seems fair. Well, yeah. And, and Kelsey Plum, for instance, she it took her a little while to kind of you know, produce at the same level that you would expect from some of these other number one picks. Yeah. And, you know, she's still the she's still a sixth. The you know, she's off the bench. She's not starting for the aces. Also, that is wild about the aces that they have the two front runners for sixth woman of the year in Kelsey Blum and Derek Ambi. Like, you're so good. You have two <laughs> players who would be starters somewhere else coming off your bench and, and leading the league. That is wild. I, I'm really excited for these playoffs. I think I think think that it feels like it's going to be a sun aces final just because of the way the way that it's set up though the storm or the Lynx could catch fire and 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 hit at just the right time in those in the semifinals but um i i want to see a sun a sun aces final and i man the sun are so fun i love john quill jones i think she's going to be the mvp what i think it's just going to be I think the level of basketball is going to be really, really high. Uh, they put out the TV schedule, so everyone should figure out when they can watch games and, and go watch them. This is fun basketball, guys, and uh, I'm excited for it. All right. Well, we'll see what happens with the playoffs, but I think we can wrap this up for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, what do you have? 
So I want to talk about a player that I think was flying under the radar for a lot of people until somewhat recently. In fact, we had sort of like noticed uh, his presence on uh, particular statistical leaderboards and been like, huh, that's kind of weird. And uh, why is nobody talking about this? But now people are talking about him. And that player is specifically Salvador Perez of the Kansas City Royals, who is currently tied. I think he had a home run last night. Uh, he is now tied for the major league lead in home runs this season with 46. He tied Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Both Vlad Jr. and uh, Sal Perez have both passed Shohei Otani, who held the lead in home runs for the really the majority of the season. So it, it's been kind of shocking to see someone else overtake him, but particularly someone other than Vlad Jr., because we kind of had in our head, uh, I think a lot of fans the whole time were thinking this was going to be Shohei versus Vladdy. Maybe you'd get a Tatis Jr. in there also, uh, you know, maybe as a spoiler, but really it was like those two guys that this is the home run chase that that were kind of watching this summer and then Salvador Perez basically was like no I'm putting myself into this conversation and I might just overtake everyone and he's done it really with a a lot of consistency but also this crazy push that he's put on in the second half of the season so uh, at the all-star break he had 21 home runs which is like very good you know the all-star break is not perfectly halfway through the season so he wasn't at quite a 40 home run pace uh and 40 home runs though even being close to that for a catcher would have been really impressive there's only been eight 40 home run seasons ever by a catcher in the history of baseball. Uh, so, you know, for for Sal Perez, a guy who has been an all-star many years, you know, uh, kind of an underrated player, sort of known for his, not not just, you know, not really primarily as a hitter, I should say, but really his, his defensive prowess behind the plate. He was a leader of those Royals World Series teams, won the championship in 2015 uh, with them. Good offensive player, but not necessarily known for, you know, having a a crazy amount of power. He had 21 home runs, uh, which was a career high in that 2015 season. But he's become a power hitter recently. He had 27 uh, in 2017. He had 27 in 2018. He was on pace, if you calculate it out, you know, over a 162-game season uh, in in the shortened season last year. He's on round about a 40 home run pace uh, last year. But yeah, he had 21 at the at the break this year. And since then, though, he's tacked on 25 more home runs, uh, including uh, he had seven in July, 12 in August, which led all players in, in all of Major League Baseball. And then he has eight so far in September. And that's how you end up with 46 on the year, which just really obliterates any of his previous uh, career highs. Uh, and he's also leading the, the major leagues in runs batted in with 115. Another way in which he could kind of avert Vlad Jr. because uh, Vlad Jr. was thinking about at least briefly a triple crown potentially uh, because he leads the AL and really the major leagues in batting average uh, and he was also leading them in home runs and you know kind of hanging around in RBIs but Sal Perez has you know taken a big lead over him uh, right now it's a 10 RBI lead in in runs batted in and then has also tied him in home runs uh, so to me this is one of the one of the more bizarre stories and sort of interesting and and fun uh i know jeff you have some thoughts on 
maybe how it might not be fun uh, <laughs> or, or you're getting major no, vibes no, no, uh, no, from no. him related to a uh, certain Todd Hundley no. season <laughs> in 1996 <laughs> for the Mets. <laughs> wow. What, what all I said was... Oh, no. A couple decades ago, if you saw this kind of thing, this was like a, a huge siren alarm for a, a potential PED user, meaning that we, uh, you know, like 20, you know, 15 homers, 50 home runs. Like we did see this a few times, whether it was, you know, Brady Anderson or Brett Boone or, or Todd Hunley. And, and most of those guys generally turned out to be PED users. And Javi Lopez. We should point out Javi Lopez hit 43 home runs as a catcher in 2003, and his previous career high, he had hit over 30 once, but aside from that, not he was kind of a low to mid-20s at best type of guy. So there is precedent for catchers like that, you know, kind of having these crazy years during that heyday of the, the 90s and the early 2000s. Right. But to be clear, that point was not me saying that I think Sal Perez is using I PDs. I do I not. I love we Sal have Perez. No evidence of that, and we would <laughs> never suggest he's a, that. He's had a fine career. Um, I think there are other factors that could explain a recent sort of sort of universe, which we've talked about ad nauseum, where guys are hitting for more power. So there's, uh, you know, in in terms of approach and all that kind of thing. Um, but it is odd to do it at 31. It's odd to do it as a catcher. Um, but it's a guy who's been a good hitter and been a sort of he's been an all-star what seven times now. I mean, it's kind of a remarkable career and a World Series MVP. He's he's really had a really good career and and is not a guy who is talked about at all. So I'm I'm for one, I'm very happy for him. And also, what's Otani ever done? That guy's so one-dimensional. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, right. Yeah, right. I mean, come on. You've done this as a pitcher, but try doing it as a catcher. Come well, on. Yeah. Otani's like yeah. just a one-trick pony that, you know, like Adam Dunn. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Sal Perez, yeah, this is kind of like the, the you know, crowning individual season. I think, uh, you know, if you'd asked him, winning the World Series probably ranks higher. Uh, but Series individual MVP. and winning World Series MVP, yes. Uh, you know, often we, we forget who uh, was MVP. I can tell you the anti-MVPs of that series were, <laughs> including Matt Harvey potentially, you know, for staying in that game, including Daniel Murphy for making the, ref- <laughs> uh, the, the error that we referenced earlier. But we don't have to talk about that. Uh, but talking about catchers yes the the uh, this is only the eighth of uh, 40 home run season by a catcher ever but also with that 46th home run that that sal perez hit he broke johnny bench's record which was set in 1970 and had stood unchallenged largely really unchallenged for 51 years uh for home runs in a single season by a catcher now salvador perez is your all-time single season home run leader among catchers yeah. in all of baseball history that's kind of cool it's worth noting that his strikeouts this year he's got 158 strikeouts and that is way up yeah from a guy who who really was like a low strikeout hitter for his whole career i mean we look at like some of his full seasons 85 strikeouts 82 strikeouts um 95 strikeouts in 2017 uh, so there's clearly the trappings of of a change in approach um which you know would fall in line with everything i was just saying and, and what we've seen across baseball so it, it seems like he has like you know i'm just gonna swing for the fences and it's working yeah um, you know, and his his like his isolated power is was up last year and this year. So there there I think last year's like small season, small sample size 
maybe obscured that this was coming for him. You know, maybe we we could have seen that if it were had been a longer a longer season. I don't know. I think it's great. I think the home run chase is great. Uh, Neil, you wrote a story about the the chase that that is going up on the site today. That is super fun. And I mean, this is a fun part of the year. This kind of uh, this kind of stuff, especially for a team like the Royals that doesn't have a ton to be excited about right now it's really great to, to see Perez like you know providing some of that excitement and and you know challenging these other two really fun players for the for the home run title yeah it's really you know sort of the guy that we didn't see coming and and in that story you can see a chart of you know every day how many home runs everyone had and Otani was the leader I think for 75 consecutive days in you know June July August and and uh the start of September and you know he's lost a little steam uh and I think only has two home runs this month uh so far and that's allowed other players to jump in I mean Marcus Simeon is also having a great year and and has, you know, hit a lot of home runs this month as well. But you can definitely see that Sal Perez line just sort of take like a big leap starting in in August and, uh, you know, into and through September. Uh, And so it's setting up, you know, there's still uh, about a couple weeks left to play in the season, a little under two weeks left. Uh, so there's still a lot that can happen, and you have uh, right now three guys within two of the lead: uh, Perez, Guerrero Jr., and Otani. And then Simeon is five within five, and Tatis is within seven. And that's when you get to like you know you got the the Joey Gallows and the Adam Duvalls. Uh, although I think Adam Duvall also had a had a good game last night. So you know there's still time left for some of these guys to to put on a nice push as we go to the end of the season. Love to see it. Let's let's get more of the long ball, guys. Let's go. Chicks dig the long ball. They do. <laughs> Let me tell you. They do. Uh, all right. Thanks so much for that rabbit hole. And that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, or even if you don't, please subscribe and rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Mellon. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.